I'm going to read John 15, 9 through 25. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in the Father, in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. Thank you for your word. and Thank you for the promises of your word. God, we, we fix our eyes on you today and we ask that you would just prepare our hearts, Lord, and that you would teach us, draw us closer to you. Lord, we, we pray for Haiti. We pray for the missionaries that have been kidnapped in Haiti. Lord, we pray for your safety uh, and protection for them, Lord, and that you would deliver them. But Lord, we also pray for the missionaries that we know and love, that you would protect them, Lord, as this is a, a scary time, Lord. We pray for Kelly and for John Wildo. Lord, would you protect them, keep them safe. Lord, we pray for Pastor Leo. Um, Lord, and, and the many other pastors we know there in Haiti. And um, Lord, we just pray your, your hand of protection upon them. We pray against the work of the enemy right now who's trying to silence the truth. Lord, we continue to pray for our brother Greg Mulder. Uh, we thank you, God, for the progress each day that he's, he's getting a little bit better every day. We thank you for the good news that he got up on his feet yesterday. And we pray that you would continue to heal him, God, and that he would be able to come home soon out of the hospital to come home to his family. Um, Lord, we look to you. We glorify you. We thank you that you're always good and faithful. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning once again. Great to see everybody. It's always a blessing coming together in the house of the Lord. And even as we sing that song, it's just uh, it's a special place, a special opportunity that we get to come together as the body of Christ. But as you know, we're in John 15 and uh, continuing our study through the Gospel of John and looking at uh, the beginning of John 15 last week and the focus being the, the necessity to abide in the vine, the true vine, the essential life-giving vine that is Jesus Christ. And then this week, we, we go further into John 15 and we're going to see this contrast today. And maybe you even begun to see it as we read through the scriptures, but a contrast between abiding in Christ or abiding in that vine, the essential life-giving vine of Jesus, and then abiding in the world and what the world has to offer and the hatred that is in the world. 
Uh, so in John 15, verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. If you need a Bible, sorry, if you need a Bible, raise your hand so you can follow along. If you don't, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home. Um, but if you have one at home, you can borrow that for today and follow along with us here in John 15. But in cha- chapter 15, verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. This First, we start with the love of a father in general, right? This general sense of a father's love. There's something uh, of a special relationship between father and son. And there's a special relationship between father and all of his children, of course. But on this general basis of understanding that a father and son relationship, there's, there's this special understanding. I have two sons. I have two daughters. I have a special understanding with my sons that I don't have with my daughters. I have special love for my daughters, but there's this understanding between me and my sons because we're, we're men, and I understand they're kind. I was once one of them, and I can look at them and think, hey, I was once one of you. I understand the way that your brain is working or not working right now, right? And, and so I can give them the look and be like, yo, oh, okay, I got it, right? It's like there's this... There's the thing, father and son thing. And that's just on a general basis. And you know what? So much of my heart for my sons is to direct them, to point them in the right direction and to lead them to be men of God, right? That's, that's my main purpose is to disciple them and that they would become disciples and to direct them, to point them that, that, that direction. And there's an understanding that I have. That's just, in a general sense, the love that I have for my sons. But how much greater is the love of the Father with the Son, Jesus Christ? The love of the Father for his Son, Jesus, is unchanging, unconditional, unending. It is personal. He provides, he protects But this great love is between God the Father and Jesus the Son is the greatest love there is. And what Jesus identifies here is that's how much I love you. Now, in that love, there's an understanding between the Father and the Son. And that the Son has come to do the work and the will of the Father. There's that understanding We've talked about that so much throughout the Gospel of John, that he's come to do that work and to fulfill that work. But this love between God the Father and Jesus the Son, there's no greater love ultimately. It is the greatest love there is, the strongest love there is. And that's how much Jesus is saying to his disciples, I love you. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. This is the most direct statement of love that Jesus has made to his disciples. Just simply, clearly stating it. He has demonstrated it. He's shown them love. He's spoken of love. He's spoken a lot of their love for one another, but he's saying, no, I love you. And that's specifically toward his disciples, but now we know it's beyond that. It's for us. As the Father loves the Son, so Jesus loves us as we enter into relationship with him. And so what he says is that as the Father has this love for the Son, I have that same love for you. Abide. Remain, as we talked about last week. To abide is to remain in that love. To to further the relationship, to remain. And now you remember they have been abiding with Jesus. All day, every day, for three and a half years, they are abiding with Jesus. And so now he's saying, remain in that intimate relationship. Remain in that fellowship. The way that we have been dwelling together, abiding together, remain in that fellowship. Because it's the safest place to be. It's the most comforting and loving place to be. There's so many things, however, that Jesus could have 
told his disciples to remain in. And we would, have glad, we would gladly sign up for some of those, like, remain in my miraculous power. Like, yes, I will remain in that. I will claim it. I'll go with it. I'll just keep charging forward in that. And he didn't say remain in my power, remain in my strength, remain in my righteousness, remain in my holiness. Remain. No, he says remain in my love. And what does that look like? Jesus talks so much about love. He says to remain in it. So how is the question, verse 10, number one, obedience. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So how do we remain in his love? It's through obedience. We don't, we don't have to be concerned about straying away from or outside of the love of the Father. We get so wrapped up in this in the church. We get so concerned about, oh no, can I lose my salvation? No. If you remain in his love, you don't have to worry about that. It's not a thing. Remain in his love is to walk in obedience. And we see how close we can get to the, to the edge and see if we can, how far can I go without falling off? without overstepping? How far can I go before transgressing or before going too far? Remain. Keep yourself away from the world is to keep yourself in the love of God, is to walk in obedience. But we all do that, right? I mean, I have, I have my kids, it's always like, how far can I go before I get caught? Right? How far can I go before like, I actually transgress? It's like, well, mom, dad said don't do this, but they didn't say don't do other things that are like it, so I'll still go for it. It's okay. But it's not worth it. It's not a safe place to be, and the love of the Father is a protective love, and it's with purpose. He's saying if you keep my commandments, you will remain. That's what it looks like to remain. You show love and you show devotion to Jesus through obedience, just as a child shows love and devotion to their parents is through obedience. And disobedience is miserable. And we don't, we don't actually notice that until things go really sideways, and then we get mad at God, try to blame him. We, get, we blame God for the disobedience, for the, for the consequence like Cain, Cain who murdered his brother, and then he didn't say, I'm sorry, I murdered my brother, I'm so broken over this. No, when he faced the consequence, he said, oh, Lord, it's too much, I can't handle it. That's it. I can't handle it. And then he, he turns to blame God for his circumstance after he transgressed. He crossed the line and he murdered his brother. But we can show our love and devotion through obedience and understand that it is a safe place to be. And that obedience is demonstrated toward his word and toward his leading. He directs us and we are to follow. He's given us his word and we are not to ignore it. It's interesting that we can have, we, we try to have relationship with Jesus without his word so very often? Do we understand that this is our chain of communication, the Bible? Imagine in your marriage, you, a week, two, three, four, five, six months go by and you haven't sat down to talk. You haven't heard from your spouse or, or in any relationship for that matter. We treat relationship with investment, time, effort. We spend time together. You get to know each other. Things don't go well when you don't spend valuable time together. But I would say I was just talking to somebody this morning who, was, who, who had read a study that 70% of the church doesn't read their Bible. And some of you are like, not me. And some of you are like, yeah, it's me. But you're not going to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. 
But we, we try to have relationship with God and we put this on a shelf. We don't hear from him. Obedience is essential to remaining in his love, to abiding in his love. How can we obey if we're not hearing? My, my kids, again, I mean, they don't, there's chaos going on, and you try to instruct them, and they're like, they're gone. Me and my wife will look at each other sometimes like, did they know we were talking to them for the last five minutes and giving them real instruction? No, they have no idea. And we'll laugh about it sometimes. We're like, they have no idea that we're talking to them. And then we're continuing to talk about them right in front of them. But their world is chaos and they're doing their thing. You're like, blah, whatever. And it's like, you're, you're trying to instruct them in righteousness. And they're like, gone. They have no idea because they're not hearing from us. If we're not hearing from the Father... We're not hearing from God, then we have no ability to walk in obedience. And we have no ability to walk in that safety of obedience to God. But we show our love and devotion through obedience to his word and to his leading. And then, and, and then Jesus is even saying, look, as I have demonstrated and we know even as he will demonstrate, right, right? He says that these, uh, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he's saying, I, I, I set the example for you and I will continue to set the example for you. Obedience to the Father in his will, his desire, which is salvation, in his way, his plan, which is salvation, and then in his work, which is salvation. This is what Jesus is committed to. This is the obedience that Jesus demonstrated and that he desires for his disciples. That's what it looks like to abide. But hear this. This is the obedience of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Obedience requires humility. If you're taking note, write it down. I have it highlighted because I'm like, I don't want to forget that. Obedience requires humility. Jesus humbled himself to become a man Jesus humbled himself to the point of obedience on the, on the cross, in his death on the cross. So he obeyed to the point of dying a criminal's death undeserved. Because obedience requires humility. We don't like humility. And we see it again, in, I'm, we're talk, I'm talking a lot about my kids, but there's that father-child relationship that's our example here today. But this, this humility with obedience is pointing us to the idea that we have to be surrendered to the idea that God knows better than we do. That's the humility. Again, with my kids, I'll try to give them instruction, and they don't think I know better. And you, we've all been there as a kid, as a teenager. We all think we know better. We, don't, we will not admit that our parents know more than we know, or they've experienced more than we've experienced. Some of you guys are like, yeah, my parents definitely don't know. I know better. It's not true, okay? I promise. But for my children, I know better. I know there's, there's certain things I've experienced in life that I can offer wisdom to my children. This weekend, I've been painting the walls in the one room of our house, in the living room. I finished the painting yesterday, start putting things back together. They're like, yes, we have the room back. And what does my son do? He takes a ball and he throws it against the wall. I almost kicked him out of the house. He's eight years old. <laughs> I was like, dude, go find somewhere else to live. 
I'm, for two days, I've been prepping and moving furniture and taking things off the wall, then painting, and then second coat, and all, all the effort. And then this guy goes and throws a ball against the wall. Are you kidding me? And I'm thinking to myself, where's the wisdom? In my mind, I'm more advanced than he is. So it makes sense not to throw the, the ball First of all, don't throw the ball in the house. How many times do I have to say that, right? But it makes perfect sense to me not to throw a ball in the house because something's going to get broken. It makes perfect sense to me not to throw a ball against the freshly painted wall because you're going to ruin it and then dad's going to get upset. It makes sense in my mind because I have experienced more things in life. I have wisdom. But my son lacks that wisdom. But he wouldn't admit that dad knows better. Like, what are you talking about? It's a ball. It's not going to do anything. No, it is. And there's fingerprints all over and ball prints all over the walls of the house that would prove that I'm right and you're wrong. But it all doesn't connect. Why? Well, my, my son has to come to that place of recognizing that dad knows better. And that's what we have to come to the place of realizing. That obedience is so safe. Walking in obedience, even if it's a terrifying step of obedience, there is no safer place to be. And we have to submit to the idea that God knows better. We continue verse 11. I better speed it up here. I'm only two verses in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> verse 11. This is what we see. This is how we are abiding in Christ, right? This is how we abide in the love that Jesus has set before us. It's through obedience. And verse 11 says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be, may be made full it's joy. That's how we abide, is joy. And we actually experience joy through the abiding, through obedience. Naturally, you'll experience joy through humble obedience because it's the safest place to be. Disobedience is miserable. With no joy, it's miserable. And there's no joy in disobedience. But Jesus says, these things I say to you, and what are these things? Well, it's, he's talking about love, obedience, humility, peace that he says at the end of chapter 14, the Holy Spirit that he's promised them. It's this whole conversation. It's the upper room discourse that we've been studying now for, for two and a half chapters. These are the things, he said, I say these things to you so that my joy would be in you, that you would experience my joy, the joy of Jesus. What is the joy of Jesus? Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's his joy. The cross was somehow his joy because of love. You and me, that's his joy. Fellowship with Jesus. That's his joy. Relationship. Watching his people love one another. These are all the things he's talking about. These things I say to you that my joy would be in you, that you would experience that, that servanthood, that love for one another, that fellowship, that relationship with him and with each other. That's his joy. And that's why he went to the cross, not so we could be like the world, which we're going to get into. 
backbiting and hating each other. Obedience to the Father was his joy. And the desire of Jesus is that his disciples would experience the same joy that he experiences through his obedience to the Father. And not only that, so that he says that my joy may be in you and that your joy would be full, complete, that you would lack no joy. Because if we lack joy, and now imagine a cup of water, and if, there's, if it's all the way to the top, it's overflowing is the idea of that completion. There's no room for anything else. There's only water. And that's what our joy needs to be, full. And that's why Jesus ministers what he's ministering to the disciples. That's why Jesus has gone to the cross. That's why he has done what he's done, is that our joy would be full, that there would be no room for anything else. There would be no room for complaining. There would be no room for sorrow. And those are the things that will naturally take over the empty space. That's what happens. If our joy is not full, something else is going to fill up that empty space. And that something else will easily be sorrow and, and complaining. How many other things that can steal our joy? But Jesus doesn't want it to be so. He died on the cross so that it would not be so. He spoke these words. He demonstrated his great love time and time again so that it would not be so, so that our joy would be made full. The joy of the Lord should make no room for anything else. And when and if complaining or other things that creep in to take our joy away, when those things take over, we need to get back to the safe place of humble obedience. That's where we find joy. Because then there's this sweet fellowship with the Father. If we're walking in disobedience, we're going to be hiding from God. Like Adam and Eve, like Cain, like how many people walk in disobedience and then hide from God? That's what we do. I have, we have a little dog. He does something he knows he shouldn't do. You walk in, you're like, hey, Chewy, and he's like, mm. And you didn't even know he did anything yet. He's hiding his tails between his legs, and he's walking. He's like, I'm going to go to bed now, okay? Like, he knows I'm going to say, go to, your, go to bed. And he just walks, and, okay, I'm sorry. It's automatic because he knows he's walking in disobedience. Even a dog could figure it out, guys. Why can't I? But we walk in disobedience. We're going to hide from God. We're going to know we're going to have that tail between our legs. Oh, I'm just going to go. God doesn't actually want us to hide from him. He wants us to get right with him. He wants to have fellowship, and that disobedience breaks fellowship. We need to walk in humble obedience. Verse 12, we continue. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know uh, what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father. I have made known to you. Listen, guys, love is essential. Jesus has said it so many times and he's saying it again. Love one another as I have loved you, which is to abide and to be in fellowship, dwelling and remaining in fellowship. That's our love for one another. It's, it's community, and that community is so glorious, and it is found in the body of Christ. You have a place in the body of Christ if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But, listen to this, there's even greater love. He says, love one another as I love you. That's great. You're going to love each other. You're going to have fellowship. It's sweet. There's unity. There's community. It's a glorious thing, but there's greater love than that. Is, I mean, 
That's so hard for us to even get our mind around. We love the brotherly love. We love the fellowship that we get to have. We love coming to church and drinking coffee together and laughing together and talking about all the things of life. And we, we love going to each other's houses and playing at the park. And I mean, you can fill in all the things we love one another in. And it's awesome. But there is greater love than that. And it is so far beyond our comprehension. It's that love between the Father and the Son. And this love, listen, greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So you have this great brotherly love, this phileo and this fellowship, and it's glorious. But greater love is to lay down one's life. The depth of the love of Jesus is so greater, so greater than great. Love can go no further, ultimately, than laying down your life. That's the end of the line of what you have to give is your life. And then Jesus says this. He, he's, he's going to demonstrate this greater love very soon, but he's going to start to connect the dots even now. He says, you're my friends. Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You're my friends. And you show that you're my friends through following me. Through obedience, you have shown me that you're my friends. And he's going to lay down his life for them. No longer, he says, that you're no longer do I call you servant. For a servant does not know what the master is doing, but they know what the master is doing. They've crossed over. Jesus has told them all the things that the Father has sent him to do. He's explained to them the work of salvation that is happening. The work of salvation that Jesus has come to fulfill, he's explained to the disciples, and he's saying, you have been made aware. And so I, I no longer call you servant. I call you friend. Because you've learned the things that you need to learn. And, and it's this idea, it's no longer a rabbi and, and student relationship. It's a friendship because of invested relationship, because of revelation of Jesus Christ. It's his friendship. They've been made aware of the things that the Father has sent the Son to do. Through more and more experience with Jesus, we become more friendly with Jesus. They know the work of salvation, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the love, his peace, the relationship. He's made them aware. And now, they're on the same mission. That's what friendship ultimately is, is to be agreed and on, the, on this mission. And they would be commissioned soon after. Uh, Theology professor at Wheaton University, Merrill Tenney, says this, a friend is a confidant who shares the knowledge of his superior's purpose and voluntarily adopts to as his own. They've crossed over from that, from one to the next. To offer themselves and, and to say, yes, Jesus, we're on mission with you. And Jesus identifies that, saying that you are on mission, you do understand. Verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you that you love one another. Jesus, again, he chose his disciples. They didn't choose him. Usually students would choose their rabbi. That's what Jesus is pointing them to, to right now. As, as, student, as the picture we've talked about before in the courtyard there of, of the temple is there would be different rabbis in different sections and they would be teaching and people would kind of go, they would go and find one of those, those rabbis and start to listen to their teaching and, okay, let me go test this one out over here and listen to that teaching. And they would choose, which school am I going to go to? Which rabbi is going to be my rabbi? That didn't happen. 
Jesus chose his students, his disciples. Remember he said in John chapter 1, we studied it. He said to Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And he called him. He said, follow me. So that's, it's flipped the other way. And Jesus said, I chose you, and I chose you for this purpose, to bear fruit. And that, that translation here of bearing fruit is, is talking about as you go, as you live your life, bear fruit. It's not, this isn't the commission right here, like go and be evangelist. It's like, go live your life. And as you live life, you should look like me. You should look like Jesus, and you're going to bear fruit in your life as you look like Jesus, as you are on the same mission that he was on, which was to fulfill the work of salvation. So now you are speaking the truth of salvation of the work of Jesus Christ. But it's just as you go, as you live your life. And then he says to remain, which is to continue to be fruitful, to have enduring fruit that would last, and that's going to come through prayer. Asking the Father in my name. As you abide in Christ, you will ask in his name according to his word. And the Father answers. He will do incredible things. That's where the the fruit comes from prayer. And the fruit comes from verse 17. Your love for one another. Such great fruit comes through our love for one another. And Jesus brings it up again. Love one another. And that ultimately, the love for one another is the fruit of what Jesus is doing in us. If we are transformed, if we are being changed from glory to glory by the work of Jesus Christ, that work of salvation, then we should be bearing fruit. And we should be loving one another. It will be the natural response. Verse 18 Now we switch gears. We see this contrast now of that, of what the world has to offer. In verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus, giving this contrast in this picture, he's just giving them all this good news, man. The love of Jesus is wonderful. It's going to change you. It's going to impact you. It's going to cause you to love one another. You need to be loving one another. You need to walk in that and abide in that love and have fellowship with Jesus and have fellowship with one another, and your joy is going to be full. It's going to be glorious, and there's even greater love that you're going to understand once Jesus dies on the cross. But now, listen, the world is not so. It kind of hurts when you're mixing it up with the world. The world will hate you. First, he's saying, if the world hates you, you know that it's because of me. And Jesus is giving them a little comfort in that, like, hey, it's not you, it's me, right? You're going to be hated, but it's not your fault. You just follow me, and the world rejects me, so they're going to reject you. And that's the word hatred we're talking about here. It is a rejection, and the world rejects Jesus, Why do we see wickedness in the world? Why do we see all this chaos going on? Because the world, people, have rejected and are choosing to reject Jesus. That's the simple truth. It's the same story from 2,000 years ago. The world and the religious system and all the, 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 the law that was put there, they thought they could keep and they couldn't, and Jesus came to show them that. We'll get into that in a moment, but... The world just rejects Jesus. That's what they've been doing, and that's what they're still doing. The world will hate us as we follow Christ. The world will hate the disciples as they follow Christ. The world will hate us as we follow Christ. It's not super encouraging on the surface, but it's important to remember in preparation for fruit bearing that fruit bearing is a painful process, right? The pruning happens, and there's different things that are going to happen, but fruit comes of it if we have the right perspective. In fact, hatred from the world can be 
kind of exhilarating. It can be kind of exciting because then we know we're doing something right. If the world hates us, then we know we are in great fellowship with Jesus. We know we are bearing godly fruit if the world is hating us. But there's encouragement too because we have a place in our love for one another. We have a place in the church. We don't have a place in this world. But we have a place in the body of Christ. We have a place in heavenly places, in eternity. And we, the church, as we've established, are to be known by our love for one another. The world, what we see here in these verses, is to be known for their hatred. Now, the world would try to claim to be inclusive. But if you ask me and you look at Scripture, the world is, in fact, the most exclusive group there is because they hate those who are not one of them. Jesus says it. If you were one of them, if you were of the world, then you would be received. You would be one of their, you would be accepted into their group, but you're not. So you're hated. You're not one of them. You don't look like them because you walk in love. That's the difference here. If you look at the theme in these two sections of scripture, one is all about love and one is all about hatred. Abide in Christ or abide in the world? Which is it? What would you rather? And Jesus said, you are chosen out of this world, meaning you are set apart. I called you, and now you're set apart. Jesus has done the work and fulfilled the work of salvation through that, has called you to have a relationship with him. And by having that relationship, you are called to be set apart and not look like the world. If you look like the world, what is that fruit? It's not good fruit. It's not godly fruit. Evaluate. You don't belong in the world, therefore the world hates you. We won't fit in and we're not accepted, but we do belong in the family of God, which is inclusive because of love, real love. And there's, there's a call to repentance in that love, but it's real love because Jesus laid down his life. But Jesus continues, and he talks about this fellowship that they would have. And he's saying, remember I said that the servant is no greater than his master? Meaning, when I said that, I was not just talking about that we are now friends, but we will have a special fellowship, and that fellowship is going to be in suffering and going through the difficult things, right? The, 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 the servant is not greater than the master. If they persecute me, we're going to have fellowship in that persecution. You're going to be persecuted as well. But if there's fruit of ministry, if they do, because some will keep his word. Some will follow Jesus. So if they keep his word, they'll keep your word too. But it's not you, guys. It's me. That persecution is not because of you, it's because of me. That acceptance or that following is not because of you, it's because of me. That's what Jesus is saying here. And that's what he follows up with in verse 21. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Because of a rejection of Jesus Christ, they don't know God. And Jesus has told them that before. And now he's saying this, look, it's not you, it's me, it's for my name's sake that you're going to face persecution. It's for my name's sake that you can expect to have fruit of the ministry as well. And fruit will come through persecution. But you will be found guilty by association with Jesus, is what he's telling his disciples. Will we? Would you be found guilty by association with Jesus? Because the world has no fellowship with God, do they hate us? We should want them to. We should want the world to hate us. We should not want to fit in with this world. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. 
Jesus here, if I had not come, then they would have no standard. They would have no understanding of what guilt and sin connection is. Because there is a connection between sin and guilt. They wouldn't even know what the standard of sin was. They think, the world thinks, this religious system that's been set up is what Jesus is referring to. And he says, they think that they're good law-abiding citizens. And that through being good law-abiding citizens, they're okay. But then Jesus shows up. And Jesus shows them. You're not who you think you are. Your, your, your law is flawed. You can't fulfill the law. And so Jesus now brings the standard to prove and to show them they are guilty of sin. And he says, it's because I've spoken to them. What is John all about? The words and works of Jesus so he says, in, his, in word, because of the words that he has spoken, they are found guilty. And it's by their rejection of the truth of the word of God. But Jesus did come and speak. He says, if I had not come and speak, they wouldn't know their sin. They wouldn't even see their own sin. They wouldn't know the standard. They wouldn't know the truth, but I did come. So now they have no excuse for their sin. There is no way out of this. Jesus takes away the excuse. He does the same still today. We try to excuse our bad behavior, and we won't even call it sin. We'll just call it bad behavior, or we'll call it, oh, I'm struggling. We're sinning. Let's call it what it is. And recognize that Jesus took away the excuse. We'll say, oh, I'm struggling because of this and all the circumstances in our lives. And it's okay. God understands. Or it's okay. You should understand why I'm doing this. It's to cope with this other thing that's going on. And we make excuses, but Jesus took away the excuses. And he took it away in his words, in speaking the truth, he claimed victory over sin. But then further, listen, verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. So he's saying not just the words, but the works. Jesus demonstrates righteousness, and Jesus in his works also takes away the excuse for sin. He came, he spoke in his words and his works. He finds the world guilty, and he reveals sin and motives. But they still hate him because Scripture would have to be fulfilled, the last verse there. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. In both Psalm 35, verse 19, and Psalm 69, verse 4, say that. They hated me without a cause. It had to happen to fulfill Scripture, but that is an absolute place of misery. To hate without cause that's the world. The world is miserable. Look around the world and you can attest to that. It is miserable. People are miserable. And there's so much backbiting and hatred going on in the world. Why? Because of a rejection of the truth of the word of God and the work of salvation that Jesus came to fulfill. That's the problem. There's not all the other problems that people try to blame. It's, COVID's not the problem. For division, it's not COVID. It's sin. Vaccine is not the problem over division. It's sin. It's people. It's rejection of Jesus Christ. 
Racism in the world and in America is not the problem. Sin is the problem. People hate each other because people rejected Jesus. But we should not be so as the church. So looking at this contrast to abide in Christ is love. The world has to offer is hatred. To abide in Christ is, is love for one another within the body of Christ. The world offers rejection. To abide in Christ is even greater love and to lay down his life for his friends. The world offers persecution. To abide in Christ is the, there's the joy of the Lord. But the world offers guilt. As we abide in Christ, we have fullness of joy when the world offers sorrow. To abide in Christ, we have fruit when the world offers misery. Hate without cause. Think about what that looks like, to hate something without cause. Like I have, I have maybe foods that I hate, but there's a cause. I don't like the way it tastes. It's that simple. When I was like four years old, we ate Sloppy Joe's one night for dinner. That night, I got miserably sick. I probably had a stomach flu, but I hate Sloppy Joe's. I'll never eat them. If you invite me over your house, don't give me Sloppy Joe's. I'm just saying. It just, it, it stuck. My brain, I hate them. I tell my kids all the time, there's only two things we're allowed to hate, the devil and the Red Sox. We're allowed to hate the devil, right? The Red Sox, we have cause because we are Yankee fans. That's it. It's just the way it goes. But without cause, it's like, I, I hate that. Why? Like, my, my, one, my one daughter's a really picky eater, and we'll try to give her food and try this. And I hate that. Did you ever try it? No. You have no cause. There's, this is a miserable place to be. You are missing out on all the glorious foods that are out there. It's miserable. There's no cause to that, but that's what the world is doing, tearing itself apart without cause. But the cause actually goes back to the rejection of Jesus Christ. They don't even know it. But in the body and in relationship with Jesus, we have great hope. We have great fellowship. We have greater love and our joy may be full. Let's pray.